Welcome to Grace and Peace Church. I am Vincent Hoppy. I am the church planning pastor here. We've been meeting for now over seven months. I don't know if you can kind of think about that. That's pretty cool. God is doing some wonderful things in many people's lives. And if you are a part of a city group, you could hear more about those things. It's been been awesome. But the past few weeks, we've been talking about the values of Grace and Peace Church. What are the things that makes Grace and Peace distinct and different from other places? Uh, One of the things that we're going to uh, uh, discuss heavily is always going to be something called city engagement. It is what we value, one of the things that we value here. We don't want to escape the city. We don't want to be afraid of the city. We want to be people who seek the welfare, people who pray for the city, people who understand that as this city goes, so goes our lives. And so what we want to find out, especially on a day like this, how in the world are we to uh, do things like evangelism or engage our neighbor while we are just living basically in exile, while we're waiting for a city that is to come, while we're waiting for Jesus to come back and set things right. How do we live in this in-between time? Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14, discusses and shows about these people who are probably, it's probably right before the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, which was in 586. So this is probably a little bit before that is when this is happening. Uh, this is after the, Isra- the, the, the tribes of Israel, the, the northern tribes that followed, a, I mean, my brain is always, always fun, Jeroboam, and this is at 1 Kings 12, that they were put out and they were taken out by the Assyrians, and now there's these Babylonians. Had come in, started taking artisans, started taking people out, and so they brought them into Babylon, so they're in exile. And why were they in exile? It's because they weren't following the Lord. They weren't keeping Sabbath. They weren't resting. They weren't allowing other people to rest. They exploited the poor. They didn't care for widows. They led a culture into deep systematic injustices. They failed to reflect God's character in the world, but he didn't, te- but he didn't tell them to stop being his people. He didn't kick them out. He didn't say, off with your head and just get rid of them. No, At this point, he tells them to live out their mission as God's people, to reflect his goodness and character in a place that has exiled them. That's problematic. Uh, When I was coming here about four years ago and planning to get here, there was a lady I met at a homeschool co-op place, so you never know about the characters you're going to run into there. I homeschool my kids. If you were homeschooled, I have nothing against homeschooling. Okay, just put it there. Okay, I homeschool my own kids. I went to public school, love public school still. I'm all, I'm for schooling. How's that? You know, there we go. I for schooling, schooling's good. All right. So I meet this lady and she's from Colorado Springs. She goes, oh, you're going to Colorado Springs. Oh, you want to plant a church there. And I'm like, I am getting some funny, like, uh, communication from you, your illocutionary force, that's a nerdy way of saying, you are saying something that your words aren't necessarily saying. And so, I asked her, well, what do you think about Colorado Springs? You grew up there. And she said, well, it wasn't really nice. I didn't like it. The city was terrible, overrun by, by, by poor people. And then, the, then she started saying things that were like, kind of like, 
make me cross my arms and like feel like I'm, I'm being threatened. She goes, it was filled with, you know, liberals. And I'm like, okay. Uh, and, and she said, she said, and then the LGBTQ community is really strong and, and they have their agenda. And I don't think I could ever possibly raise kids here. The differences politically, people were fighting with each other all the time. And she said, the only way that I could preserve my Christian faith was to get out of the city. And she'd moved to St. Louis. And I'm like, I don't know if you somehow magically think that St. Louis is like Jerusalem coming out of the sky. But, and I know you've probably only been here for 15 minutes, but it isn't what it's all cracked up to be. And many of us feel that temptation. Many of us feel that temptation. That the best way for me to live my Christian faith is to get out of the city to be away from all those sinners without ever looking in the mirror and saying, say, you know, you know I've, I'm a sinner too, but we want to escape and get away from those people. So don't hear what I'm not saying. What I am not saying is if you go out and live in the suburbs or if you go live in a rural place that you're sinning. No, I think you could do wonderful gospel work there. You could follow Jesus there, and you could love your neighbor who's probably not a Christian there. But what I am saying is a disdain for, for the city where so many of God's image bearers live, a disdain for the, the culture and everything for, uh, that, that happens in the city is probably, probably wrong place and is shaped by our culture in a different way. So why in the world should we like this city, and in particular this city? Why would M83 in the song Midnight City say, the city is my church? It is where they interact with God. Uh, it is, these are the reasons. One, you see the image of God in so many people. Everyone you pass reflects the goodness and image of God. Every person. You don't just pass mere mortals. As Francis Schaeffer says, you pass by image bearers, people who reflect God's goodness. Uh, this is the center for economics. People will drive hundreds of miles away to go, from hundreds of miles away to go to Costco and eat samples for two hours, okay? <laughs> it is like in the book of Jonah, at the book, end of the book of Jonah, it, it, the Lord says, should I not care for that city of so many people and all that cattle? You're like, all the cattle? What do you mean? It means that there's a lot of economy going there. God even cares for the, the economy of a place. It is also a center for justice. This is where our courts happen. This is where, where justice uh, happens, where law uh, goes on. This is also a place for education. You think about here in Colorado Springs, we've got Colorado College just up the street, an extension branch of UCCS. Three blocks over is Pikes Peaks Community College downtown. We have the United States Air Force Academy, which is some of the best and brightest leaders of our country in the future, just up the road. And we also have um, uh, UCCS, the main camp, or the, the campus here, which is actually the one that's going to be the one that can actually expand the most and receive the most students over the next few years. We see that this is the center for arts and creativity for El Paso County and for Southern Colorado. This is where things happen. Uh, largest sectors of growth here in Colorado Springs are amongst young people working as defense contractors or in startups. We also see that this is a center for religion. Different religious groups 
call this place home. This is a place where military people come over to Fort Carson, Shriver Air Force Base, uh, Peterson Air Force Base, United States Air Force Academy, NORAD, and Northern Command. People come here, and then they get sent back out into the world. It's strategic. But then we also see that if you're going to live here, and we're going to plant it, we have a church here in Colorado Springs that is downtown. We are at the intersection of I-25, North all the way to like Montana and south all the way to Mexico. And then if you think about Highway 24, it goes into all the mountain towns that we have yet to start new churches. It's where there's many people to be reached, especially if you go uh, skiing and snowboarding. Uh, you, you love those people. You see them, but they are special. <laughs> and they are wonderful. But we need to be able to reach those people with the gospel. Oftentimes, though, we see the good and the bad with cities at the same time. Cities in the Bible, there's always been two types of city. There is the city in which is typified by Babel or Babylon, which is the evil city in which Sodom and Gomorrah follows in suit with that. And then you see opposite cities, cities which will reflect God's glory. So we think about Jerusalem. In Zion, and then we also see the vision of Zion on the end. And in the middle, we see this city called Nineveh, which, in a weird way, tempts God's people and shows God's people, how do you have contempt for all these non-Christians, these nations, when I love them? And watch this, they repent. And so the word is to the nation, to, to the nation of Israel, to his people, is, is be like Nineveh. How'd you like that? How'd you like it if you're at a church and suddenly you get a message, be like the, be, be like, uh, the LGBTQ community? That is basically what God said to Jonah. Be like them. It's insane. He wanted them to repent, to turn. And so we see these two types of cities. And so how in the world do we live in the city? Uh, during the time of Babylon, this is an exile. And we have these Ju Judaism is, is generally allowed, and it's a pluralistic society. We had the same in Rome. So when First Peter is written, which is addressed to the exiles in the dispersion, it's also the same situation. How in the world do you live in this pluralistic society? And we live in a general time where Christianity is irrelevant. You know that? It's kind of nice that you believe that. Don't believe it too much or too strongly, and you'll be okay. You know, uh, and a lot of this is the modernist version of the city. There's a lot of people who are optimistic about the city and say cities are the greatest, cities are the best. And this is a holdover from what modernism was. And what it was was that we were going to be able to get to the apex of technology and culture, and we're going to make the city into a place, into basically the kingdom. You see, what they wanted out of the modernist story was a kingdom without, without the king. And they wanted to affect it by having good health care, by having a great education, and that technology and, and profits would bring us to the epitome and apex of society. But then after the First and Second World War, philosophers and people started turning their head and saying, this vision for society isn't the, all it's cracked up to be. And then we have this postmodern cynicism and romanticism. Oftentimes they look at the city as kind of evil, 
all religions are equally valid and invalid at the same time. And what matters is, is what you choose for yourself. So that the human, the, the person became central. And you can pick and choose. The greatest value would be tolerance. How dare you say anything negative or say no to that person because they are just as valid as you are in, their, in what they choose or invalid at the same time. And so what we've seen now is that we've moved into a society that is post-Christian. It's been inoculated to the gospel. And Christianity is irrelevant for most people. Um, and when I mean inoculated to the gospel is that we have gotten just enough Christianity in the society to which most people would say, I know what Christianity is. Christianity was that bygone era where, uh, you know, men, or where, where men were able to execute their power over women and mistreated them. And, and also it was a time in which, which uh, people had no rights and you could use the Bible to control everything. I don't think I like your vision for the Bible. Jesus was a nice moral teacher, I could follow Jesus, but your idea of the church, I don't like that. And so the city has become very post-Christian. And so how in the world are we supposed to live in this time? This world, we're always living in a tension between the world of what we want and the world that, ha that we're existing in. We're always living in that tension, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian. And we always see these tensions whenever we have like protests for climate change, protests about uh, police brutality, uh, protests about political differences. We always see the fighting between Republican and Democrat always pointing the finger saying, they're the problem. They're the problem. That's, that's what's wrong with the world. And so what it is is that it's this tension that's going on. We want the, a world to be a particular way and we want to get it the way, get, it, get us there. But the gospel will challenge both the false modern optimism and then they will also challenge the postmodern cynicism. Here, here's the deal. If we really believe that the good news of Christianity really is good news, then we won't run away. We won't run away from the challenges of the city and we'll engage the city. I, we will shock the lady who was at the homeschool co-op by saying, no. I love Colorado Springs in all its goodness and all its folly. And we will go into that city. And we will care for that city. And we will live lives reflecting God's goodness in, in, in how, I, how I live. I will actually engage. I won't run away from it. And so if we're going to find out how in the world are we supposed to engage the city, we need to, do, we need to answer two major questions. And then that will shape our posture toward the city. So the two major questions is, who are we? And what time it is. Who are we and what time is it? So who are we? So from the beginning, God created a people. A people for himself to be his image bearers. We see this in Genesis 1 verses 27 through 28. And then we see that God through an image bearer in Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve had rebelled and went against God. He said, I am going to crush what this serpent has done. I'm going to crush the serpent, but I'm going to do it through an image bearer. From the seed of the woman, I will do this. And so for the entire Bible, we're waiting for that one person who will go and defeat the, the enemy. And so in Genesis 12, verse 3, we see a promise then given to Abraham, Abram to go, that he would be a blessing, that God would bless him 
so that he would be a blessing. Exodus 19, God chooses a people, Israel, to be his holy nation and a royal priesthood. And this is repeated in 1 Peter, that those people who are living in exile in Rome, they are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. If you are a priest, you are to reflect God's character into the world. You are to mediate between, God's, between the people and God. And so when he calls an entire nation to be a royal priesthood, they are to show God's character into this world. He's to, you are to be his people into the world. You are to be his hands and feet. You are to be his very presence into this world. You are to be the very presence of God in your workplace. You're to be the very presence of God on Tejon Street when you're out with your friends. You're to be the very presence of God when you're out at a restaurant or bar into this place. Why? Because God loves and cares for that place. That's why he doesn't call all his people out. He pushes them into the cities. And that's why in the time of exile in Babylon, God's people were called to go into this city. And so, this, so what they were to do in this city was to be a counter-cultural example. So we are to be counter-cultural examples that reflect God's goodness. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, records a number of these uh, little excursus about how Christians lived in the midst of a pluralistic, anti-Christian society. This was said in a letter to Diognetus uh, about Christians. Christians are no different from the rest of their nationality, language, or customs. They live in their own, they live in their own countries, but as sojourners. They fulfill all their duties as citizens, but they suffer as foreigners. They find their homeland wherever they are, but their homeland is not in one, any one place. They are in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh, which is sensuality. They live on earth, but are citizens of heaven. They obey all laws, but they live at a level higher than required by law. They love all, but all persecute them. That's written by a non-Christian about Christians. Furthermore, when a plague hit uh, the ancient world, and this was written about uh, the plague at the time, and this is what was said. Useless were the prayers made in the temples, consultation of oracles and so forth. Indeed, in the end, people were so overcome by the suffering, they paid no further attention to such things. They died with no one to look after them. Indeed, there were many houses in which the inhabitants perished through lack of attention. The bodies of the dying were heaped one on top of the other, and half-dead creatures could be seen staggering in the streets or flocking around the fountains in their desire for water. The temples in which they took up their quarters were full of dead bodies of people who had died inside of them. For the catastrophe was so overwhelming, so, so overwhelming for, for people, not knowing what would happen next to them, they became indifferent to every rule of religion or law. No fear of God or law of man had a restraining influence. As for the gods, it seemed to be the same thing, whether they worshipped one or not, whether, when one saw the good and the bad dying indiscriminately. See, there was a plague in Athens, in the city, and people were dying. And people did not care. They were just heaping the bodies up. But you've got to remember who you are. And so, 
Rodney Stark, this is uh, recorded by Dionysius, and he writes about, about Christians. Most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected, and for they were, oops, sorry, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of elders, deacons and laymen, winning high commendation so that in, the, in death, from, the, uh, from death in this form, the, the result of the great piety and strong faith seems in every way to equal martyrdom. You see what Christians did? They went into the places where people were dying in Athens and took care of the sick. And it says it transferred the sickness of the dying onto themselves and they died in their stead. That's what was said of Christians. And what could possibly empower that but by believing that Jesus Christ has transferred the ultimate sickness, your sickness, the sickness of your sin, onto himself. So heedless of danger, you can run in to a dying city, literally dying, and see it be transformed. We need to remember who we are. We need to remember who we are. Next thing we need to do is we need to remember what time is it. This was a time of exile. Uh, in, in, uh, in Jeremiah, they were taken out of their city, and they were placed in a city that did not care what you believed. It didn't really matter, but they were there. And so they were in exile. We also saw this in Peter's time. And whenever you read in 1 Peter, they were brought into exiles. That's why he, sa- he says that they are living in exile. And so you're living in that in-between time. Jeremiah's time and, the, and their mission, they're still supposed to be a paradigmatic people. They're supposed to be a particular type of people. Um, and we need to ask ourselves, what, type of, what time is it? You know, um, Christianity at that time was mostly just sneered upon in First Peter. It wasn't active persecution. It was basically you were treated like an idiot, an imbecile. And it's very much the same way now. Think about it. People find out you're a Christian, or if you're even bordering on the idea that you actually believe the gospel, you read, you read, the, you read the Bible and you take it mostly like this is, this is actually what it's saying, it's pretty literal. Um, if you read it that way, then all of a sudden people are going to say to you, um, dude, you're, you're an idiot. You're weird. You're taking this thing way too seriously. And at worst, they're going to start to call you a bigot. And they want it, they, 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 you'll end up on some sort of newscast or someone will complain about you. And so we're starting to move into that time where Christianity is kind of looked down on and you're like, what, what a moron is what they're going to say about you. Uh, let, me, let me give you some statistics. Do you know that here in this city, or actually, let's do America, 27% of Americans say they have no religious affiliation whatsoever. They're past religion. In a particular way. Do you know further beyond that, here in Colorado Springs, we're probably at about 32% identifying as a nun. Not like nun with a habit, but like no religious affiliation. And so, so you see it's growing. 
But then you get to this fun age group between the ages of now uh, 26 and 36 called the millennials. And you find out that 40% of that age group, of that age cohort, no religious affiliation whatsoever. And some of them have discarded religion because of very, very uh, good reasons. There have been good reasons to say uh, Christianity is not, not, not what I'm going to follow. And so... Uh, most people, they don't care about Christianity, and Christianity is this fringe player in our day. So what time is it? We need to realize that if you're a Christian, you're living in, in a lot of ways, the same situation that the people, the Jews, were living in in Babylon, and in which the people in First Peter were living in uh, in Rome. And so what do we do? I'm going to say that we have to have three posture shifts if we're going to exist in this society. One, we need to embrace cultivating over consumerism, and this is in our text. Notice he gives this argument. Uh, is the Lord says this to the people. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile to Babylon. And he, he encourages them to cultivate over being a consumer. He tells them to build houses, to plant gardens, to take wives, right? And then he goes on further, and he says, you know, it is not just build houses, but I actually live in them. He says, plant gardens, eat their produce. And so he goes on from an argument from lesser to greater. He says, not just show up, but he actually says, show up and actually live a life that reflects God's glory in this world, but in all the ways you do it. And so what would this look like nowadays? It means buy a house in downtown Colorado Springs and actually meet your neighbor. It means that you, buy, you, you show up into downtown and you join things like the downtown partnership to find out what's going on. It means that you walk around and you pray for this city, that you seek what is going on. You want to be a cultivator. You want to be like a farmer. And you want to think about it like that. You don't want to just walk around and have the good things of the city. The city has good things. You know, we've got theaters, we've got art, we've got awesome things, fun parks and different things like that. But not only that, we should try to bring out the goodness, the fruit of this city, so that it would be a blessing to others. So we need to promote it. We need to go in and know people, pray for it. We need to contribute to it. We need to uh, go to the things like the art walk. We need to meet people there. We need to hang out with, with uh, find out what, what Olympic, we need to get into the Olympic spirit where the Olympic City USA, we need to enjoy their, the sports and champion those things too. So we need to be cultivators in our city. And this happens over time. Farming is not picking, okay? cultivating takes a long time. I know I should just say cultivating. Cultivating nowadays has this weird connotation here in Colorado. So not, not that. It just came to mind. My bad. And one of the things that you have to do over time is that you have to address the idols because we know that cultivating, you have to pull out, uh, I'm going to say weeds now. It's weeds. And it's so funny. You know, and you have to pull out the bad influences in the world. 
And so you got to address and, and call out the idols. And what are the idols of Colorado Springs? I've only lived here three and a half years, and so you might know more. But we have an idol of the high-functioning family. That my kids go to the good charter school, they get good grades, they score good on the ITBS test, they never sh- sh- shout in the grocery store ever, they never want candy, in fact they eat little chia bar- bars instead, they're super healthy and they can run up the incline. That is my family from, from 6 a.m. to 10 at night, we are always busy. And you're always telling everyone, I am so busy and I've got it together. Or if you're a young person, you're always saying, I'm super busy, even so busy that I can't even check my dating app. I'm always doing something. I'm involved in every club. I'm able to cl- I, 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 I sport climb and traditional climb at the same time. I don't know how I'm able to do it. I snowboard and ski. I do all the things. I'm living for the great experience. And everyone's all like, man, that's a high-functioning person. How in the world is he actually going to make money to you know, all these sports that he's doing? I don't, I don't know. And what we're doing is we're always trying to paint this picture that we've got it all together. And so every person in this room in Colorado Springs is suffering a lot, in a lot of ways from trying to be the high-functioning person that we've got it all together, always telling that we've, we're, you know, I, I'm, I'm good. But what would it actually look like? Do you know what would be countercultural in this world? Is if you said, I'm not good, I'm tired. I've, I've had enough. Instead of saying, I'm okay, No, it's really hard. That's a breath of fresh air for people. We have people who who love the outdoors. We do do all kinds of things. Or we're super highly educated and we look down our noses at everybody else. We've got to call out the idols of this city and live a different way and be countercultural. And that's important. So we embrace cultivating over consumerism We don't just use this beautiful city. We cause it to flourish. And so that brings us to the next one. It says, seek the shalom or the peace. And so I'm going to say we need to embrace relationship over retreat. Seek the peace. He says, for as, seek the welfare is what it says, but it is shalom or peace. As you seek its welfare, as it goes, so your welfare will go, so you will have peace. Because it says, basically, show up and be part of this city. Show up and be part of people. Seek a relationship over retreating. Get to know and immerse yourself in the life of the city. Spend time with the agencies and centers that are promoting the common good. Volunteer at Springs Rescue. Show up at good places. Go to Crossfire Ministries and spend time. You know, and beyond this, you actually get to know people. And what you'll find out is not that they're going to corrupt you, but in a weird way, maybe you'll actually uh, corrupt them, corrupt them for the gospel, corrupt them for goodness. You share the good news. Uh, one of the ways you can get involved is city service next week. Get involved. Be involved and develop a relationship with the city. Um, I think that's, that's one of the important things. We need to seek the shalom, seek the peace. That means bringing together relationships that were broken. Bringing together relationships that are broken. And ultimately, it is our relationship with God that needs to be put back together. Our ultimate problem is not that we don't have enough education, not that we don't have enough money, not that we don't have enough systems. The ultimate problem in this place is a spiritual problem and it is a disconnect from God 
And when you are the presence of God showing up into every nook and cranny of this place, you are to be an agent or an ambassador of reconciliation. That's what you're to do. So the next thing I'm going to say is that you have to embrace hope over hostility. You know, um, one of the things is to be a fearful person. And notice that out of fear, people were saying, oh, we're going to go back. People were people-pleasing. So the diviners and prophets were saying, it's okay. We're going to end up back in the city in Jerusalem in no time, guys. Why? Because it was easy to hear. Of course, everyone's going to like that person. But then here comes Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. You know, he kind of cries a lot. And so that's why there's a whole book of lamentations. Don't tell me he doesn't cry a lot. I mean, there's a whole book there. Um, And so the weeping prophet Jeremiah writes this letter, you know, and he says, Thus says the Lord, don't listen to those diviners and prophets who are just people pleasers trying to please you and tickle your ears. No. Don't just get out of the city. Don't retreat. No, he says, go into the city. Seek the welfare. Be my people in the city. Do something different. And so what kind of hope are we talking about? We're talking about a future hope, the belief that, that um, as in 1 Peter 1, it says, therefore prepare your minds for action, being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation or the coming of Jesus Christ. See, Christians believe that we're going to have a kingdom and a king and that this world will actually reflect God's goodness and he will wipe every tear from every eye. He will fix relationships and it will be good and glorious. But we also have a present hope. Christianity believes that God actually dwells with his people, that they are the temple of God. And in Ephesians 2, it says that in which God dwells amongst his people. So God is, a, is presently with his people. So we have present hope and we have future hope. But we're fearful, aren't we? Anyone here a people pleaser? And people pleasing kind of keeps us from doing anything. Sometimes we don't want people to ruffle, we don't want to ruffle people's feathers, causing anyone to look down on us. Other times we fear not saying the right thing, and that keeps us from saying anything. We fear not having magical words, basically. We fear not sharing the gospel because I'm not going to do it right. Or in the end, you realize, yeah, you say something about Jesus to someone that you actually love, and you show up in your bed and you realize, what in the world did I just say? And it's like you try to catch it like it was a butterfly flying out of your mouth. You're like, oh, I want it back. You know, and that's the way we feel. We're afraid that we've hurt people's feelings. But here's the deal. We got to have the right order of, of fear. Right order of fear. It wasn't fear of the Babylonians. It wasn't fear of the diviners and prophets. What was the right fear for them? It was fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. Fear of God. Here's the deal. You know how this looks like? You know what fear of God looks like on a kind of day-to-day basis? It looks kind of like this, okay? I, uh, I have a general fear of my spouse, not like she's going to, like, beat me or anything. Uh, I have a fear of my spouse, right? And so sometimes whenever you have a spouse and they go home, sometimes the parents will start to gang up on the spouse and they image her as, like, the 12-year-old child, and then they start saying ridiculous things, right? And, and you have a choice at this time. Are you going to be a people pleaser? And are you going to fear the parents and join in 
you could join in. I was really bad at this, and I would join in when we were first married. did not go well for me. And then, or you can have a proper reverence and priority for your wife, and you could suddenly defend your spouse. And here's the way it works then in Christianity. At times, people are not, you're afraid that you're actually going to say something that will hurt someone's feelings. And at that time, you have a choice. Either you're going to fear God properly, or you're going to fear those people. You've got a choice at that moment. And the proper fear of God will get us to say something. It may not be the perfect words. And that's okay. God will use how, whatever he wants to make it happen. And so we are to live with hope over host, uh, hostility. And so what this also looks like is, is what it says in 1 Peter 4, th- 4 through 6. It says, With the respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You've got to know whose judgment ultimately matters, God's or people's. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. In the end, whose judgment matters most? In the end, when you are on social media and you could go after that troll or you could troll someone else, you've got to decide for yourself, am I going to disagree well, or am I going to go in and just do what everybody else does and trash that person and take them down a notch? You see, the deal is, is your standing in Christianity does not depend on how good you can argue on social media, how well you can disagree with someone. And if that is true, if your standing of Christianity is based on Jesus Christ, your standing in the world is based on what Jesus Christ has done, then social media shouldn't matter. And in fact, the way you actually care and love and disagree with people on social media should cause other people to say, what is up with those Christians? They act differently on social media. They act differently on social media. So what in the world are we to do? You know, And take away social media. Yes, Gloria. (laughs) Amen. No. No, and so the thing is, that's that's actually what a lot of people say. Let's run away from social media. Let's run away from the city. Let's let's get out so that we can preserve ourselves and be good. And God will approve of us whenever he shows up. And that's what the diviners and the prophets were saying. Let's preserve our culture, our society, our way of doing things, and get out of the city. And God says, no, you're my people, and I want you to go into the city and seek its good. And remember that story that I told the children. There was a woman who was bleeding for years. She went to every doctor. How do we know it says that she went to every doctor and there was no hope? Because it says in the Bible, she went to every doctor. And so she goes to every doctor. She was from an unclean town. She was ritually and ceremonially unclean. But yet here comes the holy Jesus coming to her city. 
And he goes into the city, and the people are pressing in on him. He's going to heal someone else, but she thinks to herself, if I could just touch the hem of his robe, then I could be transformed. And that was her faith. And so she came in, snuck through everybody else, touched the hem of his robe, and suddenly she was healed. She went from being uncleaned, unclean to clean in an instant. And here's the deal, y'all. If you have been touched by Jesus, if you have been made clean, the city isn't going to press in on Jesus suddenly and make him unclean. And here's the deal. It says in Ephesians 2 that you, God dwells amongst you. And you go into the city. The city is not going to spoil you. But it's rather the other way around. You in some way are going to spoil them. You are going to change everything for them. Because God dwells with you. And it is not their uncleanliness making you unclean. For if you are in Jesus, you are always clean. And you will bring cleanliness, goodness, wholeness, shalom into the world wherever you go. And it was because, so to keep clean, you don't go out of the city. You can go into the city. Because we believe that Jesus Christ was the one who was taken out of the city and sacrificed outside of the city. Because he took all the sins of the uncleanliness of his people, took it out of the city, and died outside. So that that city can be made clean. For the true Jerusalem. For the true people. And if you love him, if you trust him, you have been made clean. And you are agents, wherever you go, of his goodness. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, you do transform and make us new by the power of your word and the indwelling of your spirit. Lord, I pray that we would engage this city and love this city, that we would desire to see the city transformed. I pray that you would be here now and you would transform us and strengthen our faith so that we would be your agents of reconciliation in this world wherever we go. And I pray that you would do it through this meal. Lord, help us to seek the shalom of Colorado Springs. In Jesus' name, amen.